0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 145, where we interview Chelsea Brennan from Money Smart Mamas and get her story of leaving a lucrative career to start her own business and how being financially savvy helped her realize her dreams.
1: I think it's really going back and thinking about your relationship with money before you dive in. And sometimes, you know, oftentimes, especially when people start budgeting and start setting these goals, they'll tell me like, well, I can't, but every time I try to budget, I get stuck or it doesn't work or I just can't budget. There's probably some roadblock in there that you're setting up in your brain that is keeping you from moving forward. So I think the first thing is really thinking about your relationship with money.
0: Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my vibrant co-host, Scott Trench.
2: Thank you, as always, for the gleaming and glowing intros, Mindy. They're just fantastic every time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, and show you that by following the proven path, you can put yourself on the road to early financial freedom and get money out of the way so you can lead your best life.
2: That's right. Whether you want to retire early from your high paying Wall Street job, could travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, or just start your own business, we'll help you build a position capable of launching yourself towards those dreams.
0: I'm so excited to have Chelsea on the show today. She left a lucrative career as a hedge fund investor to start a passion project because she wanted to make a mark on the world. Chelsea is the founder of Money Smart Mamas, which is an online platform that gives women support and guidance as they navigate all aspects of their money, helping them overcome emotional blocks and identify what they want most to create healthy money habits, not only for themselves, but for their kids too.
2: Yeah, I, I found Chelsea super fascinating. She has had a wonderful career, made a lot of money, is super smart, like clear analyst extraordinaire here. And yet she was able to leave that world of investment banking and distressed debt and hedge funds to start Money Smart Mama. And she, you know, you can tell is applying that incredible intelligence and perspective that she's gathered over the years, just helping people master their money journeys, helping moms in particular master their money journeys. And it's just a a wonderful story. It's got the analyst bit and the emotional bit. And I couldn't be more thrilled to bring her on today.
0: Yeah. She's like a combination of left brain and right brain. Mm -hmm. Like she gets the emotional side of it, but she also has this crazy analytical side. It's an awesome show.
2: And I know that everybody listening is going to have a really good time listening to it. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. Help you make it happen with a killer travel card.
0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com.
2: NerdWallet, finance smarter.
0: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply.
2: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So... How do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com slash Pockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash Pockets. Chelsea Brennan, welcome to the Mama Pockets Money Bigger. <laughs> welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Mindy and Scott. So tell me where your journey with money begins, because I want to get to the part where you have a job, because that's fascinating to me. <laughs> Not, oh, that sounded so mean. That's like I want to get to the point where you finally get a job. I don't mean it like that. I, I want to talk about your job. But first, let's talk about what led up to that job.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I was very lazy. It took me a long time to get a job. <laughs> no, so my money journey starts way back when I was a kid. And so my dad had a business partner. And you know, rich dad, poor dad, the the whole drama with that book very much is actually similar to my actual life, where my dad had a business partner, they made the same amount of money. They handled money radically differently. And so my dad was constantly spending all his money and kind of in debt and just not super responsible, where his business partner was one of like the original boglehead guys and he was telling me from like age 12 vanguard investing like early retirement all this stuff from early on so like he gifted me benjamin graham's book when i was like 14 years old i also had my uncle in my head right and wanting to earn money and having this real deep value we'll talk about later how i didn't really recognize that i attributed wealth and money to self-worth and to my worthiness and so i decided i'm going to go to wall street And I never thought I was going to be there forever. My goal was to work there for like a first act career. And then as much as I hadn't heard of true retiring early, I was like... Forty, 45, I'll leave and go do something else with more purpose. And so my first job out of college, I was an equity analyst at Goldman Sachs. I was there for several years. And then I went to Bain Capital, which is a hedge fund that runs out of Boston. And I managed a distressed debt book there for several years. So that's the beginning of, of my job journey, Mindy. I got there as fast as I could.
2: So what, what was your financial situation upon entering this investment banking and you know Bain Capital world? Did you have a lot of student debt or anything? Or what, what was the... No, so I there. didn't
1: have any student debt. Luckily, I was uh, privileged enough. My parents paid for my college education. I also graduated from college a year early to try to pay attention to that cost. And so I was starting without student debt. Now I was moving to New York City. <laughs> so things were expensive. But we always, I always kept my expenses super low. So even the first year, I saved 50% of my income. And then I met my husband the next year, uh, and we started dating. We actually, of all things, met on Craigslist, and were roommates for a while before we got married. And so my savings rate continued to increase once we got married. And so we were always between fifty and seventy five percent saving.
2: Awesome. And so what what did you do specifically? Give us like a very quick overview of your lifestyle. I mean, we can we can imply a little bit of high income with the Goldman Sachs and Bain career, but was there anything particularly exciting you did on the expense front, or just kind of pretty reasonable for that level of income.
1: It was just pretty reasonable. I mean, our hobbies were always low cost, right? We loved hiking. We loved biking. My husband was a yacht captain. And so we'd go out on boats, but like boats that he was working on, so we didn't have to own or maintain them. And so that was always great. But no, we just didn't have super high expenses. And one of the benefits... Yacht benefits What was that? Yacht hacking? (laughs) That's amazing.
2: (laughs) Got to get into that. (laughs) One
1: of the benefits of that style of work, and benefits is a stretch word here, is that you work all the time. And mm-hmm. so everybody saves, a lot of people save a lot of money because you're literally at the office from 6.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And so you're not going out and doing anything <laughs> except working. And even then there's benefits, right? Of like, if you work those hours, they also buy you dinner. And so you're not buying dinner. And there's a lot of stuff like that that happens in that industry. But no, we just kept a pretty frugal lifestyle.
0: Okay. So when you said you're at the office, were you talking about your husband and his yacht office or you and your... <laughs> Uh, your investment banker office. My investment banker office. Okay, okay. For some reason, I would. But yeah, office would be more fun, but yeah, that would be fun to be out there six to ten. But yeah, that's you know I think that's really important to note. And just because you're not an investment banker doesn't mean you can't get a second job and always be working and never have time to spend money. Well, but I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, well, she had it so easy because she was an investment banker making, you know multiple six figures or seven figures or 12 figures or whatever investment figures make.
1: Um, that was a stretch. No.
0: <laughs> but I also, when I was much younger, I was a administrative assistant. I was a waitress and, and I went to school. So I never mm-hmm. had time to spend money. I was working or I was in school. I probably had a super high savings rate that I never tracked because nobody talked about financial independence 200 years ago. So, you know, I can hear people saying, "Oh, well, it's it, like dismissing the story. Oh, well, whatever. She was making a lot of money. You can still do this by mm-hmm. taking on a second job. You can not spend money because you're working all the time and not just making a ton of money. And it's still a great way to pay down your debt and uh, save for the future. You can have a fifty percent savings rate, no matter what the rate of money that you're bringing in, if you're by if you've got a second job." put all of that money into a savings account or pay down your debt or you know invest or whatever.
1: And I think too like that was not a lifestyle that I would want now as a parent, which is part of like the change that we'll talk about, but at the time, I had close friends that I worked with, like I my son's godmother worked with me at Goldman, um we had a good network there. It was not like it was miserable. Mostly we were seeing our friends and working and doing really intellectually stimulating, interesting work. And so it was okay for me to be at the office all the time. I was not miserable early on until we started really thinking about a family.
2: Could you briefly describe what investment banking is for those who don't know?
1: Yeah, so I actually I can tell you what investment making is. I was not an investment banker, so I was okay. an equity analyst. and so nice. my job, my first job was evaluating stocks. I specifically specialized in commodities and metals and mining. Um, so I would look at those type of companies, set target prices for them, and then pitch buy or sell recommendations to portfolio managers around the world. And so that was my first job. And what was really cool about that job from an investing perspective is you learn so much about valuing stocks, not just doing it yourself, but you had to go debate with these portfolio managers managing billions of dollars, right? And they would challenge you, especially if you, especially if their investment position differed from what you were telling them to do. They would argue with you, not always kindly, but you learned about how they thought about investing and how they thought about valuation. And so it was really interesting to learn deep about the industry, but also to learn about investing in that way. And then when I went to Bain... I was doing more hedge fund distressed debt stuff. So you're talking about risky companies, either high yield companies or like facing bankruptcy. And so I was doing debt still in the metals and mining and industrial spaces at that point. Same things, valuing companies. And then actually the difference between the research and that job was I was actively investing money. And so when I left Bain, I had a book of 1.4 billion that I invested in the industrial and metals and mining space.
0: Okay, so what's your hot stock tip?
1: (laughs) So I don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all index funds. And frankly, I've talked about this before. Most people in my industry were 80% plus index funds because we recognize how, A, how hard it was to do this right, and there's all kinds of regulation around you can't invest in things that you're invested in or that you're a specialist in. And so when you took us out of, like, so I could never invest in metals and mining and industrials, I don't know those other companies. And I knew how much work it was to get to know those companies. And I was like, I'll ah, just index fund invest.
0: <laughs> it's way easier. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go back and say that again. I know <laughs> how much, how hard it is to learn all of this. So 80% of the. Im- The professional investors are in index funds. Say that part again, because that's so so important. (laughs) Most
1: professional investors primarily invest in index funds. It's just, it's simpler. It's how it works. There's regulation involved there too. But we know that even when you are... intricately super deep knowledgeable about a company, it's not easy to get it right. And we had the benefits of sitting down and interviewing the CEOs and CFOs. We had the benefits of going and visiting the plants and talking to customers. And it was still really freaking hard. And we still got it wrong sometimes. And so index funds, like people ask me sometimes, like, could you, could you beat the market with stocks? And sure you could, it's possible. But how much, if you're just an average person, how much of your life do you want to dedicate to researching your stock portfolio and fixing it? And you, you're better, you're better taking that energy and going and earning more money and just investing in low cost index funds or investing in real estate, whatever you want to do that's a better way to optimize for most people. And so that's that's what I do. And that's what a lot of people I worked with did.
2: Can you briefly explain the concept of alpha?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. So alpha is how much money you make versus the, the basic index. And so some of that, the beta is just general volatility. And so that's how much the market moves up and down naturally due to cycles, due to news, whatever. Alpha is how much actual gain you benefit from by how you choose stocks. And so for us, some companies will say like, oh, we have this alpha generation over the market of 5% or whatever, which would be crazy, but (laughs) 5%. But if you look at the sectors that they they actually track to, so maybe versus the whole S&P, they're they're 5%. But if they only invest in distressed or they only invest in metals and mining, that alpha might only be 2% or 1%. So you have to compare it properly to what the underlying index is. But yeah, it's just that what your actual benefit is from stock picking.
2: What's the really good alpha for one of the best you you came across from somebody who managed assets or picked these winners in the industry, what would be like good in the eyes of your bosses at Goldman?
1: Yeah. So, so really it's hard because for, in a year, you can yeah, like on a,
2: over a five-year period. I don't know. Over
1: a five-year period. I mean, over a five-year period, you're talking 5%, 10% maybe in an, in the hedge fund world mm-hmm. over the index. But, in a year, maybe you see 30%. But then the next year, you're probably going to miss. <laughs> so it's really hard to say. And I think that most of the time, it depends on what you do too. Because like in, in debt investing, a good alpha is 50 basis points, half a percent, because you're not talking about as much gain. The difference usually isn't that high. And five-year period, it's, the longer you stretch that period out, it's not, it's not that different. <laughs> you're getting closer and closer to
2: just the market. So that, that's the, the point I want to make with this is, if you are a... On your own, building private wealth, and you're building hundred thousand dollars to invest, which is a lot of money, right? And you're getting an alpha of five to ten percent over ten years. That's five to ten thousand dollars over those ten years versus an index fund. If you're one of the best in the industry, if you're good, right? And so that alpha has to be earned, and how many hours have to go into being able to generate that in a in a I don't know how many hours I would have to go into generating that. It's a full time good... job,
1: Scott. I mean, that's what you do, right? It was like our whole line. <laughs> we're working 80, 90 hour weeks and we had teams, right? Like I had people that worked underneath me. I We hired experts. Like it's so much work. And what's I think, the like, hourly
2: rate for a $100,000 investor getting that 10? I don't know. Yeah, it's I'm just, at least I'm going, I'm going down that rabbit hole because I want to like emphasize how hard that is to do that, right?
1: And I think I want to. I want to be clear too. Like we can talk about the best of the best, but this is all the statistics, right? Of like ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of active investors, professional active investors, underperform the market long term, right? Like over a thirty-year period. Oh, say that again, too.
2: Well, is that net of their fees to investors? The returns their investors receive. There's a bunch of different
1: studies that go into that, and I don't remember which number is which, but you end up in the same place where you're Mm -hmm. like somewhere between 90 and some of the, some of the numbers that are are lower that are like, Hey, you know, 90% or 85% underperform the market over 30 year period. They don't correct for survivorship bias. So like funds that just go under in a 30 year period, they just <laughs> remove those from, so then that number should be higher. Oh. And it's, You see what I'm saying? So like mm-hmm. there's all this stuff that goes into it and and that doesn't include hedge funds are a little bit different, high risk, but I'm more looking at like mutual funds, general. Yep managed stock portfolios. When you're getting into private equity and distressed, yeah, there's a ton more risk, but the return differential is much higher, but you can't do that as an average person.
2: (laughs) I have one more question about this real quick. At Bain, you said you managed distressed debt, right? So non-performing debt, I, I imagine. Can you explain how one produces a return on investment by investing in that asset class and how how you go about generating alpha again in in, in that area?
1: Absolutely. So there's two sides of that. So distressed debt can either be companies that look like they're going to go bankrupt and so their debt starts trading at a really reduced rate or that's already bankrupt. And so most of the time in distressed debt, what you're doing is as a company is approaching bankruptcy, you're picking up positions in their debt as they get closer and closer to bankruptcy. There's usually not a tr- lot of trading that happens once they actually file. It does happen, but not as often. And so let's say they had a term loan, like a sec- which is secured debt, similar to like a mortgage on your house, that in debt, it would be trading at 100 if it was worth a dollar for a dollar. So it gets down to like 30 cents, and you buy up a huge swath of it. You buy up 20% of that term loan. When they file, you now are the first creditor in line. And so you're trying to get first cash paid back if you can and equity if you can't. And so you're looking for companies that you think actually have value and can come out and operate as companies once they shed bad debt, shed bad assets. And then you own that company on the exit you improve them, you do some capital investment, and then you try to sell the company or re-IPO it to make your money back and make a really good return. So this is, it's a lot more than kind of just general stock trading because you're really trying to manage the company as well. And you have to be able to know enough about the industry to and enough about the company's assets to know what can this company do and how much is it is being mismanaged, how much of it is market cycle. And so that's the way you generate alpha is, getting enough equity or getting enough return to see like, hey, the market is undervaluing this because they don't see the the kind of diamond in the rough that this company could be if we fixed
2: it. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I find those those fields interesting. So I wanted to ask some questions there. So thank you for allowing us to tangent into this.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't gotten to talk about it in a
0: while. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> throwback here. All of that sounds way easier than investing in an index fund. Way easier, yeah. <laughs> way it was, it was yeah. Totally easier. So, because we're talking slightly about index funds, or not at all about index funds, how do you invest in an index fund? I have $1,000. I want to put it in an index fund. How do I do that, just as a regular person?
1: Open an account at a brokerage. You could go to Fidelity or Vanguard or Charles Schwab, or tend to be the lowest fee options. You move your money from your bank into your brokerage account, and then you pick either an ETF or a mutual fund that is labeled index. You could look for an S&P 500 index or a total stock market, total bond market, and then you just put your $1,000 in there and then you're done. And you will always get the market return. You won't generate any extra alpha over the market, but you also won't lose any money under the market. And so you're done.
2: Do, Do we have a resource anywhere that... We get this question a lot, that is a literal walkthrough about transacting on an index fund literally like the, the mechanics behind purchasing that. Do we have a, a linkable resource to that anywhere?
0: I don't know. Chelsea, That's... do you have a step-by-step? I don't have, I, I'm trying to remember. We So we have the Money Mama's Guide to
1: Investing that talks you through opening your first investment account and why you should invest. And now I'm trying to remember like how detailed we go into buying that fund. I know we like have some screenshots of what you're looking for in some of the dashboards but that's a good question so, yeah I've always just assumed it was so straightforward <laughs> I don't think we got super detailed you know well, I let's... think
2: I think we should create a video uh, for how to open up a brokerage in Robinhood Etrade Fidelity Vanguard just go through them one by one and create a little video on literally mechanically how easy it is to actually do this so that people can feel comfortable about buying an, a Vanguard index fund through any or ETF through any one of those
1: Absolutely that'd be great Let's clarify what an ETF is. An ETF is an exchange traded fund. So similar to a mutual fund. So index funds can be an ETF or a mutual fund. Similar to a mutual fund, it's like a a basket of investments, right? Imagine a suitcase and you're packing all the different stocks inside of it. So for an exchange traded fund, it's a basket of investments. And then they break it into shares. So the difference is a mutual fund trades once a day. And so you can buy and sell, you can put in your buy and sell orders all day. At the end of the day, the market closes. They set the price of all the things that are in that basket, which determines the price of that mutual fund, and it trades once a day. An exchange traded fund trades on an exchange like a stock. So it moves up and down throughout the day based on the underlying investments and based on primarily the supply and demand of that fund during the day, how many people are buying and selling it during the day. For a general index fund, you're not going to see much difference between an exchange-traded fund and a mutual fund. The biggest difference you're going to see is that in most places, you can't buy partial shares of an exchange-traded fund. You can of a mutual fund. So if you had $100 and each share of an ETF or unit of an ETF was $30, you could buy three and then you'd have $10 just sitting in cash. And so your cash yield, there'd be a pull from the cash just sitting there not being invested. For a mutual fund, you can buy fractions of units. And so they would, buy, they would put the whole um, $100 into the market and you'd have 3.33 units of a mutual fund. But in general, they're going to operate about the same. And so sometimes, like for a Vanguard, there's, minimums, there's higher minimums on some of their low-fee mutual funds. But you could go do the ETF and you're basically getting the same experience. It's just that it trades value all day long.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I invest in both. I personally I have a mutual fund through my retirement plan and I invest in ETFs in my after tax brokerage account. Same same index funds, you know, or, or index funds that track the S&P five hundred for me. And I just one of them happened to be an ETF because that's easier to purchase through Robinhood, which is the <laughs> brokerage app I use on my phone, and then the retirement account we have through work.
1: Yeah, we don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but I'm going to mention that some of the other ETFs that are more commodity driven. So if you were buying a gold ETF or an oil ETF, those actually have physical assets that underlie the value of that ETF. And so in moments when there's high volume trading, you can actually get a gap between like you're paying more then you actually own in oil or gold with that unit. And they will eventually square it up. But there's times that you see those ETFs really jump and correct because they have to fix... They have to either go buy a bunch of gold to fix up what's in, what they own as a ETF. And so that can cause some changes. And so they're a little bit different when it comes to that. But if you're just doing stocks, you're just doing index funds... They're basically the same.
2: This sounds very exciting for a Goldman Sachs equity analyst. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so let's get back to your story here. So you have you you are at Bain Capital, I believe, is where we left off. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of your your wealth position as you enter and, and maybe exit the career with Bain? And let's pick up the story there.
1: Yeah. So right around when my first child was born, I started to have this like, I can't actually survive in this career for 40 to 45 years. It just wasn't serving my purpose. I liked what I was doing, but I had been switched in some sectors that I didn't enjoy covering as much anymore. So it was getting harder and everything just felt like I wasn't living as the person that I wanted to be. I was also struggling with some postpartum depression. And so that played into it. But during that period of time, I discovered the FIRE movement. And so because we'd always been saving 50 to 75 percent of our income, we realized we were on track. Like we could fire by the time I was like 37. I think at this point I'm 28. okay So we're like, oh, we don't have that long. like I, should we tough it out? Should we wait? Whatever? We decide we're gonna stick it out and try to to make it to our fire age and then do my next stage career. And during that period of time, I really needed some kind of passion project. So I started a blog. Smart Money Mamas is the name now, but its original name was Mama Fish Saves. There's this whole story that goes with that. But I let my mom's group name the blog. I was answering their money questions. And I loved it. I loved... Like I completely... It was was growing. We were answering mom's questions. I was tying in all this money knowledge I had, but also helping families and educating, which kind of pulled back that other side of me. And so as I we got pregnant with my second child, I had major back issues. I had three herniated discs in my back while I was pregnant with him. Um, my water broke early and he was almost a preemie. So we had all this stuff going on. And so I was in the hospital with him. This is December 2017. And I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like I understand fire is, you know, eight or so years away and I know we can make it, but like What's the cost? Like, how much of their childhood am I going to give up? How much of my health and well being am I going to get up to keep doing this job? And so we pulled up our fire spreadsheets literally in the hospital. And it's like December. So it's like before the holidays. My husband and I, we pulled it up and I said, How long do we have? If I left right now, how long do we have of runway? Because he's also a stay at home dad. So we would be going from mid six figure income to zero (laughs) overnight. I do not recommend making this decision, by the way, in a stressful, Moment of your life in a hospital. But we did. We sat down and we said, okay, we're at coast fi already. If we don't add any more money to our retirement savings from now until the future, we will be fire by the time I'm around 45. Okay, that's great. We're still way before traditional retirement age. We have two years of cash runway to build this business for me to go to zero to enough to live because we don't have to save for retirement anymore. The kids' college funds were already also built up. Are we willing to take that risk? are we willing to say two years? You get two years to figure it out and either go back to finance, get another job, get into consulting if it doesn't work out. And so we said yes. And I called my manager and just said like, listen, I need a break. Like I need to do something else. This I have loved this opportunity. I've loved the intellectual development, but like I think after everything, I need to break. And they were, they were great about it. They were definitely a little bit confused <laughs> about what I was going to be doing for work. But I'm grateful that they paid me through my maternity leave they still gave me that my bonus for that year which also helped us with our goals and things like that and and we transitioned and i went from you know hedge fund to working from home with a 2 year old and an infant a few weeks later
2: so was your wealth primarily in at this time a 2 year cash reserve and then retirement accounts was that what kind of like empowered you to to feel comfortable making that decision or did you have other assets outside of those Kind of two buckets?
1: Yeah. So we were primarily cash. We had some traditional, like, taxable investment accounts we could have pulled on. And then we had retirement. We would have pulled some money out of taxable. And then we were also, we had a house in Boston and we knew we weren't going to stay there if I left that job. We would either move closer to family. We were talking about moving to Vermont and doing more of like a homestead thing. Uh, But we knew we'd be able to take some equity out of the house, which would have helped the runway when my prior employer decided. To pay us through maternity leave, we didn't end up having to take money out of the market, but we did have cash accessible. We weren't going to have to tap retirement accounts, and that gave us some some comfort. I, I wouldn't have done that, so we had some some wiggle room.
2: So it sounds like there's a lot of math that went into this to calculating this runway, and it sounds like you were planning on expenses changing after you left your job as well. Can you walk us through kind of how you were doing the back of the napkin on on those?
1: Yeah. So I use a tool called On Traject- Trajectory that like you can put in all your different assets and it'll... You can set different growth rates for them, different inflation rates, and it'll chart out. And so we could move money around in there pretty easily. And then I had a robust spreadsheet that tracked some of these things that we were pulling. And I have I have budgeted every dollar I have ever made in YNAB and you need a budget like since my first job. And so I've used it since it was a desktop app. And so we had a ton of information about where our money went. And then... I'm a researcher, so we kind of knew when we hit FI eventually, we wanted more property. We wanted to do that homestead thing. So we'd been doing research on like, okay, what do things cost? What are costs of living in different states? In that moment, in that stressful moment, I will be honest that we basically said, let's take our expenses and assume they're the same as right now. And that there will be probably be places where costs will go down, our cost of housing will go down, our cost of food and just general expenses will go down but we'll also have to pay for our own health insurance. We'll also have other things changing. And so let's just assume it's a wash and we'll figure it out as we go. And I think this is a big thing we've always thought with budgeting of like, there's no fixed number. As much as I like to sit down and build a spreadsheet and try to project five years in the future, it's just never gonna be right (laughs) exactly. And so it's okay to shift as we go.
0: Okay, you just said, we'll figure it out as we go. But I think that is a flip comment from you because it doesn't sound like you were figuring out as it as you went. And while this sounds like you were sitting in the hospital and like, you know what, I just want to quit my job. This was a calculated move from you for a long time. You just didn't know it yet. And I just want to point that out. If there's somebody listening who's like, wow, I really hate my job too. I'm just going to quit. No, Chelsea set herself up knowingly, unknowingly, like we did the same thing. We were saving a large percentage of our paycheck, my husband's paycheck, I was a stay-at-home mom, because we didn't know what to do with it. Like you just invest it, but we certainly weren't spending it on everyday things because we're just cheap like that. We just we don't spend a lot of money. So frugal. what?
2: Ah, no, frugal. Saying, frugal, did you frugal. say frugal? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah.
0: we're cheap. Uh, no, it's a combination, but- Once we discovered financial independence, my husband said, you know, hey, what do you think of me quitting my job? I'm like, do it because you're so miserable. I knew we would be fine. Even, I mean, we didn't have all of the spreadsheets, but it sounds like you really did track everything. And what's the number one piece of advice for people who are just starting out, Scott? It's track your spending and, you know, make a budget. Track where your money is going in and out because that's so important to know.
1: Absolutely. And that flip comment was more about like how we figure out the budget, (laughs) how we figured out like (laughs) where we got money, because you're right. We had built this runway and we didn't know what it was for yet. And I think that this, you know, we can talk about too, some of the struggles that happened after I left. I think that that would be really beneficial for people who are just listening of like, oh, this would all be better if I just reached fire. or This would all be better if I just quit my job. I do want to talk about that. But first and foremost, like. I needed a kick in the pants to make a change. Like we were ready. I could do it, but I was scared. Like I was scared of giving up the income. I was scared of being a young family, being the sole income provider (laughs) and like not having income. Obviously that's not an easy thing. And it was, it truly took being in the hospital and having had spent that entire pregnancy up to that point, Guys, I couldn't sit or stand for longer than ten minutes, and so for they had to put a standing desk in my office, and I had to stand until the timer went off, and then sit down again, so that I could like continue to operate and not end up in the hospital because my back was so bad. And there was in a lot of that was stress induced, was emotional induced, and I still kept showing up to that job. And it wasn't until we were literally like with a NICU doctor being toured around the NICU if we were going to have this you know preemie baby that I was like. Something has to change, and then I was willing to say, "Okay, we have the big building blocks in place. Let's figure out the rest of it as we go."
2: One one of the things that before we get to the challenges after you left, like putting yourself in the shoes of someone who's listening, and maybe they earn a moderately high income, but maybe not mid-six. You mentioned casually mid-six figures, which seems like a large amount of money um, from an income perspective. A lot of money, (laughs) yeah. But like, suppose that you're in Boston or a coastal city like New York, and yeah, you know, you think you're doing pretty reasonable on the on the spending front. There, you know, what advice would you have for somebody to be able to put themselves in your position from an the optionality that you seem to have at early thirties here?
1: Yeah, I think tracking is really important and determining what you're what actually brings you money brings you joy to spend money on. I think a lot of in that coastal in the coastal studies there is so much pressure to go out and I mean, the cost to go bowling in New York City or Boston is ridiculous, right? And so it's a little bit deciding, like, what kind of lifestyle do you want to live and how much are you willing to? I hate the word sacrifice because it, it's just shifting. And so we had, you know, in New York City, where everything is really expensive, my friends and I used to have what we called DOS, which were days of fun. And we would pra- track some kind of frugal fun. So we would do a game day or we would go drive out. Um, into the you know more rural areas of New Jersey and do apple picking. We do these activities that we were all together, but it was pretty cheap. And so we just changed what we wanted our lifestyle to look like to save more. And then if you want more optionality, sometimes it, ha- it comes down to you've got to leave those coastal cities. And so if you're going to make a change, if you're going to go become an entrepreneur or do a different career... Start to do some research, you know we just started looking on Zillow in other areas. we looked near our parents, we looked in Vermont, my mom has a house up there, and like okay what 's it going to cost if we no longer live in one of the most expensive parts of the country, and that gives you a lot more option too
2: mm. but it does it does sound like if you 're in one of these coastal cities there's ways to reduce your spending by keeping in control of that, but that i 'm gathering the real answer you know underlying this my snarkiness is. Got to earn a pretty high income if you're going to be in one of these coastal cities and you're trying to fly. And if you're not earning that high income, maybe that what are you doing in that coastal city? If if this is a top priority for you, you know, it's going to be much that much more difficult to save given the housing and, and other high expenses of living. Is that is that a fair? Am I, I going too far with I that? I would
1: say that's a fair assumption. I think either you got a side hustle, you've got to figure out ways to make more money. There's ways to you know. More roommates live in a different part of the city. Try to reduce expenses, but yeah, at the end of the day, if you're going to live in an expensive part of the country, you either have to make a lot of money or you got to (laughs) move. Like, if you want to fly early, and I and I hate that, like, say that so flippantly, but it's it's true. Like, I think that some of these stories sometimes people and we get people in our community who reach out and are like, "I just saw this headline about this guy that retired at 34, and like, I can't figure out how to make it work." And I'm like, "Well, if you make seventy thousand dollars a year and you live in Boston, yeah, you're probably not going to retire at 34." Like. There's actual fundamentals of you have to have the money to be able to save it and build up the nest egg.
2: Or you got to find some way to live for free or be super frugal, like a house hack. I don't know, maybe. Exactly, you, know, you could yeah. house hack or something like that. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, I think that that's really important to not gloss over is there are certain fundamentals that are true. You need money to pay your rent or mortgage. You need, mm-hmm. and that money doesn't have to be you working at a job but it has to come somewhere. So you know, I think that there's a lot of people who just, they do read the headline, oh, they retired at 34 and they live off of $30,000 a year. Well, when you rent for $3,600 a month, you're not going to live off of $30,000 a year unless there's another way to cover that mortgage besides money coming out of your own pocket, or I'm sorry, the rent. And in some cases, there's no easy button. You're not going to be able to make little money in, and and this sounds so snotty, and I don't mean it to be, but like in an uneducated job in New York City, you're not going to be able to retire to the Hamptons at 34 unless you win the lottery, which is not a real valid option.
1: And I wouldn't necessarily say uneducated job, right? I mean, there's so many nonprofit centers and things that operate out of New York where, yeah, you're not going to make a lot of money. And you could, I mean, there's a lot of those people who have advanced degrees and who are doing important work for the world, but there's not a lot of money in it. And so that requires either you find another way to make money or it's a balance.
2: That, or you know, like I guess I'm trying to think, relate this to my own experience, right? Living in Denver, which is not a coastal city, but not the cheapest place. You know, I was making forty eight, fifty thousand dollars my first year, and I was able to save twenty twenty five. Because I ate onions <laughs> and, and, you know, like for my dinner. You know, I would like literally cook a onion onion for dinner. You know, I, I lived in a small apartment with a roommate. I lived a lifestyle that most people would not want to sustain for an indefinite period of time. Right. So, you know, it, it is possible you're gonna have to just get super aggressive on one of those expenses or income. And if you're in a coastal city, it might as well be income because that's the advantage of living in a coastal city, I think, right? And is is the, the job opportunities that are
0: Agreed. Theoretically, okay. You ate onions for dinner?
2: Yeah, v- Virginia's <laughs> not a big that fan of that. Yeah, I would saute an onion basically and then consume the whole thing, and uh, it would. While you out had of a girlfriend, pores.
0: I was gonna uh, say you must smell lovely. I, I was single for
2: a long period of time uh, <laughs> while that that practice continued.
0: <laughs> you were and I was wondering yeah. because you're a good guy. I was wondering why you were single. No longer do I wonder. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's why, you know, Josh, we used to work at the same office. You know, he, he gave me my own office after
0: a few months. <laughs> um, well, Virginia, you are a saint. Uh, okay, let's get back to Chelsea because this isn't the Scott episode. This is the Chelsea
2: episode. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets,
0: And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years.
2: So so you you wanted to talk about some of the things that were difficult for you after you made this this transition and left your job, right?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier in that college decision, right? Was I gonna teach or was I gonna go to Wall Street? Feeling this value of self-worth equals net worth that was very it was deep. It was not something I was super aware of. It was just like we talk about frugality, right? I'm not actually a particularly frugal person as I've it like we like having someone come clean our house like i will pay for that and i <laughs> like i enjoy some of those things but early on especially a few years ago i could not spend money and so the, the memory i always talk about is like got my first wall street bonus and i could not buy a bicycle like i was like in the bike store i biked every weekend and i was almost in tears like no like i cannot let my bank balance go down and i was with my mom and she was like we should probably talk about this like this seems ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> like, and i just i couldn't separate from it and so i you know for a while when i was in that career i didn't have to think about it because we had enough money that it wasn't i could do some of those little things i could have someone come clean the house and it didn't impact our overall savings rate i still got to see our bank balance still got to see our net worth go up a lot every single year and so it didn't bother me and then i left my job and i went from getting these mid six figure paychecks and Big bonuses at the end of the year to no income, zero. Like my husband's stay-at-home dad. The business had never the smart money, mamas, mamas for shaves at the time was a hobby. Like we had never monetized it at all, and it was scary as hell. And I had these moments. I started to have these like real fears that like my kids were going to resent me because I'd taken these like opportunities away from them that that job would have provided, and having more money like schooling and things like that. That my kids are at this point like infants, right? So that I didn't mean now, I meant like in the future, they're gonna be upset about. I thought like my husband was gonna like, was constantly mad at me. He was not mad at me, but like I was like, you know, there's a certain lifestyle we got married under the assumption of, and now we are not living it. And it was all in my head, but I had this every month the bank balance went down total fear. And so we talked, when I mentioned like, thinking that just five will solve the problem or just quitting your job will solve the problem. What started to happen really quickly in that first month, I mean, I intended to take two months at least of like maternity leave with George before I started building the business. Within that first two months, I took my first freelancing client From the same hospital where I quit my job. Like, I never intended to be a freelance writer, but I was like, we need money coming in. And Jeremiah's like, we just said we have two years. And I was like, no, no, we need money coming in. Like, I'm gonna take this freelance job. And so I started freelance writing. I started doing some consulting for small businesses. Like, I was doing all these other things. And I saw opportunities to build the consulting business in particular to a high income more quickly than the business. And I almost did it. I got so close to making that decision and i had to like literally took my husband being like you're chasing money again like, we're going to be end up in the exact same place where you're going to be doing well financially and you're going to be unhappy that you're going to be doing something that doesn't matter to you and that you're going to feel like you're not being yourself and so how can we break this and it took months and months to really recognize that like a we were safe i think part of it was a safety concern and b that my family and my friends and myself i was okay and i was valuable regardless of how much money was coming in in that moment and so there is there's so much self work that goes into these big transitions of recognizing what are you doing this for and are what problem what inner problem are you trying to solve by big giant life shifts and making sure you're not just jumping from job to job from location to location fixing an internal problem externally
0: Oh, that's huge. I think so many people are focused on the RE that they don't look at what comes after RE. They don't think about how they're going to spend their days. You have 24 free hours or 16 if you're going to sleep, but you still have a lot of free time. If you have little kids, well, now you have no free time again. But finding a way to fill up your days is not going to be as difficult as you think it is. But You're just going to do all the things that you do on the weekend and at nights and on the weekend right now all the time. So, if you come home from work and you're watching TV until you go to bed, that'll just be your whole day. You can find something on TV. What is that? What is that Bruce Springsteen song? 57 channels and nothing on. And we've got like 580 channels now or something. Like, there's so much great
2: British baking show.
0: Great, so british great british bacon, bacon and, oh and netflix and hulu and and all those other channels now like you could really find a ton of crap to watch is it fulfilling you no scott's going to retire at some point in the future and he's going to play video games for six months and i think that sounds like a punishment personally that is just not that what would be I want really to bad. Do. i think scott's actually going to do it for like a week yeah <laughs> In <laughs> a week, I think he's kind of
1: resets. Like we talk, there's like some stuff in um, like the homeschool world, which I know 2020 everyone's a little bit in the homeschool world of like when you first take your kid out of traditional school to bring them to homeschool, you like they like let them unschool for a while, like just like let them don't set anything up, let them just become kids again, and then try again because if you just try to do traditional school at home, it's not going to work. And I feel like there's some adjustment period where you just you have to play video games for a month and realize that you're not happy playing video games for a month. But I tell this story partially because I think so many people spend years preparing for fire and they've built this whole identity around being someone who earns good money, who saves a lot of money. And then when they step away from their job and they're not putting that money away, there's a shift. You have to redefine who you are and what you want to make that adjustment smooth and feel like it was worth it.
0: Yeah, who do we have on, Scott? Was it the retirement manifesto who said... He
2: he has. Doc G G talks about this a lot. Is that.
0: Fritz was the retirement manifesto where he had like a five year plan or something to transition out. And it's not just, hey, I quit my job and then I'm done and I can go live the life that I want to live. You have to plan for it, it has to be a conscious decision. Otherwise, yeah, you're just going to get sucked back into whatever it was you were doing before.
2: Absolutely. Going back to. uh, We mentioned earlier with with the doc G part of this and the mental self identity that kind of goes with, I think a high end career in in hedge fund or distressed debt um, and all these fancy terms and and companies like Bain and Goldman. What, What was that like for you? Shifting away from that that career?
1: Yeah, I mean that comes back to the identity and the self worth thing too. For a while, I mean the first year plus. I had to qualify. People were like, "What do you do for work?" And I couldn't just be like, "Oh, I'm a blogger. I run an online media company." I was like, "I used to be a hedge fund manager, but I left to do this thing." And I had to like take this piece of identity with me to qualify that like I had earned the right to go do this different or silly sounding thing for some people that don't understand blogging or don't understand the online media world. And it took a while for me to just say like No, like this. Actually, I love this work more. I think this work is more important, has a bigger impact on society. And now I'll just say, like people ask, I'm like, oh, I run a business teaching moms about money, or oh, I run an online blog teaching moms about money. And most and people that meet me don't know I had that old career most of the time. But yeah, for a while, I still was so tied to that identity.
2: Mm. So how do you like? like, I guess. That is... It's not really a money thing at this point that's cut, that's keeping you from leaving the job or making it difficult for people. How do you address that ahead of time or figure out a way? Like People want to buy. We get that all the time. And in these high-end careers, typically what we see is people go way past the point of having more money than they need because it's not really that difficult when you make six-figure income to accumulate enough to mathematically achieve five. But it's so it's it comes all about that stuff. So how how would you prepare yourself for that? Yeah. Take that mental leap outside think, of the the problems you struggle with. Sorry.
1: I think this is a lot of self-work and identity work. And like who are you? What's important to you? What do your friends value about you? And this is not necessarily asking them, but like recognizing who are your people, what do you want to be, what do you want to be known for? And I think sometimes, especially when we've been in deep careers or big name careers, so many hours of our life are dedicated to that career that we do. We do think we are just a doctor, that we are just a hedge fund manager. We're just an investor. And we have to start to build up some of those other things, whether it's you know that transition Mindy was talking about with the five-year plan that Fritz has of, okay, I'm going to go to part-time for a little while and build up some hobbies, build up my bridge to what my new life is going to be because cutting it the way i did is hard because you have built this identity up so i think it's it's giving yourself some time for introspection and also just some quiet time i think so often we schedule everything in our day and especially if you have young kids you don't have a choice right like your day is just crazy but it's blocking off like for an hour i'm going to do whatever i want to do like i'm going to research something that i find interesting i'm going to go read a book and just give yourself some space to start to figure out who you're going to be after that transition mm.
0: i think that's, good that's So good. There's a lot of people who are, especially these high, high high-powered careers. These, you know, you've been going full on for so long that it's hard to stop and relax. This is something that my husband has a problem with. Even three years post retirement, is he can't just sit there and read a book. He's finally started reading Stephen King at night, but it took the. Two and a half years. I know. Why sleep? would you read Stephen King at <laughs> night? Say, that's just really <laughs> screwing up your sleep there. <laughs> well, he doesn't allow himself to relax during the day. He just goes yep. full on. And then, but at night, instead of reading something that furthers his education, he will now read something just for enjoyment, which is Stephen King.
1: <laughs> Mindy, this is so funny though, because like it was only fairly recently in the last year or two. That I was like realizing I felt really mentally drained a lot. Like I was just tired. I didn't have as much creative energy. (laughs) And I was like looking at how I spend my day and I was like, oh my God, I'm either working, I'm reading a nonfiction book, or I'm listening to a podcast about business or money or whatever. And I was like, I am constantly consuming information or creating and like, I remember I took a week and anytime I was in the car, instead of listening to a podcast, I just listened to a playlist of some of my favorite songs. And I had so much more energy at the end of that week because it was moments. It was not anything big, but it was like moments of a mental break to not try to be productive, to not try to earn more money, to just take a moment to yourself. I think that's a huge thing. And we have to practice it because we're not very good at it. A lot of people who are super high achievers.
0: Yeah. I think that's really, really smart. yeah, I was I was delighted to see him take a book that didn't teach him anything and just read it. Fantastic. Maybe something a little less terrifying. Some well, people are yes. listening,
2: they're like, who are the hell are these people? <laughs> I'm the same way. We are as, not super relatable. As, as Carl right and Chelsea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah.
0: No, you know um, what? I think that we are super relatable right now are. because <laughs> there's a lot of people who are listening to this show who are the high achievers and you know, Oh, I got to do something with my life every minute of the day. It's it's nice to accomplish things, but it's also nice to take a mental break. Like you said, you feel recharged. I purposely, when I'm... I don't have time to listen to a podcast in the car when I'm going to the grocery store two minutes away. I purposely will just listen to a song that I really like. I just discovered how to download music on my phone. So now I can listen to all those great songs again. Um, so fancy. <laughs> it was a struggle. My husband showed me, I didn't do it myself, but it's nice. But my audience is primarily
1: moms. And so primarily working moms. And I think that that you get this extra layer of like, we talk to women and they're like, okay, I blocked off 15 minutes to read. But the whole time I had held that book, I was like, I should be folding the laundry. I should be doing the dishes. I should be playing with the kids. And like, It takes practice. This is like another thing that we talk about of like, yes, the first few times that you sit down for free time or break time, your brain will not relax. (laughs) You have to keep doing
2: it until you learn how to take a break. So Chelsea, you know, it sounds like, if I can sum up this story that you shared with us, that you have been, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna Mm I went to a really good college then got this uh, very coveted high income, grueling job at at Goldman Sachs, which I imagine, you know, based on the folks that I know, is a continuation of a ridiculous career that stacked up with class after class after class and extracurricular extracurricular going through college all the way into equity analysis at Goldman. Is that is that reasonably correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was the whole way can we check all the boxes? Can I do all the things I'm supposed to do on the life checklist?
2: All right. So if I'm listening to this show, do I have to be that person to retire early and be good with money? Or is there is this success that you've had accessible to people who maybe haven't done that with their whole careers and got started like that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much of this that is limiting belief, right? And that is these old wounds we have about money. And I think no matter who you are, whether you're a high achiever checking all the, you know, perfectionists doing all the things, or you're someone who's convinced themselves that they can't be good with money and they've gotten into debt and they're in a place where they feel like they're kind of struggling. I think any of those people have money mindset work to do to find the success they want with money, to reach FI and feel comfortable and happy with that decision afterwards. And we talk, you know, the first step we talk about at Smart Money Mamas is getting clear on your money story and what you believe about money so you can start to heal it. And I think there's so much of what we learn about money. And so studies have shown that kids understand the basic concept of money by age three and that most core money beliefs are set by age seven. And to most people, that blows their mind, right? (laughs) Like by age seven, you haven't even really handled money, but you've watched your parents handle money. You've watched people in your lives talk about money and you've set these rules with a complete lack of perspective, a complete lack, you're not an adult, but you're trying to create order in your life to feel safe. And so you see one instance And you make a huge decision, right? You make this thing that then you carry through. And so no matter where you're starting, you can build a healthy relationship with money. You can build the financial success you want. But I would recommend starting with doing some of that introspection, figuring out where are you limited and how can you get better? And so we'll tie it back for me for a second with the self-worth equals net worth thing. That came from my parents early on. My dad was super idolized people who had wealth. Um, He idolized people who were successful. And so I internalized that of like, okay, if I want his approval, if I want my parents' approval, I better go out there. (laughs) I better make a lot of money and I better have the big name job. And so that limited me from entrepreneurship. It limited to me how I looked at my options. And so I had to break away from that a little bit to shift. And so sometimes we hear in our audience, people who are like, well, debt is just a way of life. You're always going to have debt. Or I'm not good with money because I'm a woman or because I do this kind of job or because my parents didn't have money. And resetting that really opens up what opportunities you even see in your life. Because when you have those limiting mindsets, you're not seeing the doors. <laughs> you're just like, this is the tunnel that I have to go down. And so that's that's where I'd start. And I think you can absolutely build the financial success no matter where you're starting.
2: Sorry, so I, I guess I, I, I missed a part. It, that almost made me feel like you get, it's set at seven and I can't do anything about it. So what, what can I do uh, from an actionable standpoint to, to attack it?
1: So what it means set at seven mm. is means that that's when you kind of internalized and sunk it in. It doesn't mean you can't change it. It mm. means that you're likely not aware of what it was. Mm. And it's been running on a loop in your brain for 20, 30, 40 years. And so you don't recognize it. It's, it's, it's running in the background and mm. it's impacting the little decisions that you make. It impacts the emotions that come up when people bring up money. And so until you go backwards, and so like the first exercise that we recommend people do is say, what is your first money memory? What is the first time you recommend, you, re- you remember somebody talking about money or doing something with money? When you first come up with that memory,
2: it's hmm. gonna seem,
1: oftentimes it feels super tiny. And you're like, why? Why can I even pull that out of my brain? <laughs> like, right? I was six, seven, eight years old. And so sit with it. Like sometimes people walk away for a couple of days. They just remember it until they realize what is the decision you made in that moment about money. And so one of my favorite stories is from another woman about, she's at the grocery store and she's with her mom and they're walking towards the checkout aisle and she sees these tiny dinosaurs and she's like, can we buy these? And her mom says, no, dad only gave me so much money. We can't get those. And so she's like, I remember that memory for a while, couldn't figure it out until I decided my dad was the decider of what we were allowed to buy and not allowed to buy and men control money. And so this woman who had grown into this powerful feminist person was constantly looking for approval from her dad, was constantly looking for approval from her boyfriend and couldn't make her own money decisions. It caused her a lot of anxiety to have to make her own money decisions. And, but as soon as she brought it into the light, as soon as she recognized it, she's like, I don't <laughs> think that, that's ridiculous. And then she could move forward but it had been there impacting her. And once she recognized it, she could see the times in her life when
0: that had driven her, but she had to think about it. Okay. That's really, that's freaky. really, yeah.
2: That's really I'm helpful. listening
0: to you say that and I'm thinking, oh, what's my first money memory? It was the time that I was garage sailing with my dad and I wanted this giant pencil and I didn't have 15 cents for it. And the guy's like, oh, just take it. And my dad said, see, if you would have spent that money before, then you wouldn't have had time to spend it now. And I'm cheap. I don't spend money. And I'm just now at age more than 40, figuring out that it's okay to spend on something that you really like or something that... Matters to you. I just bought. I'm I haven't even. Oh, it's giving me a little bit of anxiety to even bring it up. I just spent two hundred and ninety dollars on a purse, and I don't think I've spent two hundred ninety dollars on every purse I've ever had in my whole past life. But it's it's an R riveter purse, which is a it supports spouses of uh, military, and it's like it's handmade. It's beautiful, and I thought this is really cool. It was so hard to buy that purse. And as soon as I bought it, I was second guessing myself and I bought it online. It hasn't even arrived yet. But, like, what is $290 to me now? Well, it's it's no big deal. And I wouldn't hesitate to spend $290 on Thanksgiving dinner, but why can't I spend it on myself? Because mm. of That's that amazing. stupid pencil when I was eight.
2: Well, that now. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to go right with, with this. <laughs> that was really helpful. So thank you for, for clarifying that. I, was, I wasn't attempting to challenge. I just was looking for clarification no, totally. there, Chelsea. Uh, you know, and if I think about it, I don't know why I have this. I don't think my parents did anything to this effect ever when I was a kid, but I always had this thing growing up. I don't even know if there's a single memory, but just every time at a restaurant, I'd be like, there's something I really want but it's like two or three more dollars than this other item. That's just more reasonable. I'm going to get that. I just remember like walking away at being like kind of unsatisfied <laughs> at a lot of restaurants with those types of things. And so that was my big thing. So, you know, I, I set up an adult life where now I, I can get like that $10 nicer thing if I want. Sometimes it's, I don't know, for whatever reason, that was a huge blocker for me. And so, and I can tell you mine real quick. So I saved up for some
1: toy. I can't even remember what the toy was, but I saved up for it. It was like the first time I saved for something. We got to the store. And as soon as we got there, I was like, I don't know. Like I spent a lot of time saving up for this thing. Like I, I'm just going to keep the money. I don't want to buy it. And I was with my dad and he was like, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you for saving. This is going to make me so successful. He told everyone that story that like Chelsea's just saving her money. She didn't buy the toy. And I was like, see, if you buy things, then you're not as responsible and people don't praise you for it. And mm-hmm. so every time I saved up for something, it was like, same thing, Mindy, of major anxiety of like, you know what, maybe I should just keep the money in the bank. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so if you're listening to this and you you aren't uh, pleased with the, the way that your money relationship is going, think back to your first memory and what does that like sit on it and what does that teach you? And what does that... What is that saying to you? Because that's, I mean, I know I've talked about that stupid pencil on the podcast before. Um, yeah. That was a big one. And I bet my dad would be like, I don't remember that at all.
2: <laughs>
0: your parents Some,
1: will rarely remember your money memories. <laughs> <laughs> but it
0: comes back to the fact that you're little and you're like, you you completely lack perspective. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really true.
2: All right. Well, okay. well let's wrap up and move to the uh, financial scan. What do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I think that's great. great. Let's do it. Chelsea, we've recently added a new segment to the show called The Financial Scan because we want to know what you are investing in. Chelsea, former hedge fund manager, is clearly in all the things, metals and mining and industrials. So where are you planting your money so that it grows for retirement?
1: I have 100% Bitcoin. <laughs> um. <laughs> no. <is> not true. <laughs> um, no. So I am. I am invested in you know metals and mining industrials because I own index funds, and so I'm 95 percent index funds. Um, we still are very, very uh, aggressive asset allocation, so we're like 90 percent stock, 10 percent bonds within that 95 percent, but but all index funds. Um, I have five percent of my portfolio is in old co invest from work, so. Um, you had the option when you work at these funds to invest alongside the fund, uh, which is a great opportunity because unless you're like, you know, an institution, you normally don't get to do that. And so I have some old asset that sits there as that comes out, it'll go back into index funds. But the way that lockups work in a hedge fund, it'll probably be another several years before that money starts to come out. Uh, but it's been doing well. So I'm happy to have that little piece of it, but yeah, we're mostly index funds.
2: Awesome. Did that portfolio change at all when you left your work?
1: Not significantly, no, because we we weren't retiring per se. Uh, I was The goal was to start the business. And so we weren't touching our retirement money. So we didn't move it around a lot. We did move a little bit more to cash right away to give us, ourselves a bit of a cushion. But in general, we've kept it the same. The only thing that's changed is that our co-invest allocation has gone down a little bit for money that we've added because I no longer am eligible to add to that portfolio. So at one point, we were closer to like 7 to 8% in that space, but but no, not a lot of changes.
2: And when you left your job, you had two years of annual spending in cash, I believe. Did that increase, decrease, or change the same since you know since then? What does it look like now? And how do you feel comfortable in terms of cash on hand?
1: Yeah. So we have about eight months of cash on hand now. Um, the first year, the business didn't make much money at all. We had costs. And so the first year of that got spent down. And then as the business kind of grew and is at least covering part of assets, we spent it down. We haven't taken any more money out of cash. I'm comfortable with eight months. Um, at some point, I'd like to get back to closer to a year just because entrepreneurship and and kids, <laughs> it's always good to have a little bit of cushion. But no, we're at about eight months now.
2: Yeah. No, it's interesting. We know, Every person that we have now talked to who is by bi- has mentioned an eight month you're actually at eight months you are the lowest. Not not to not to give you any, any nerves there, but I would <laughs> say I would now. say that's that's my that's my take is that you you know everybody's got a, a eight months plus or a year plus some, sometimes much more than that. Is that are you seeing the same thing, Mindy, in our interviews so far?
0: Well I would say either eight months or there's a couple of people who are like, yeah, a month or two. Really? Because Who's, they have
2: maybe I'm completely wrong then. Who who said that?
0: Uh, well oh don't put me on the spot. Um <laughs> move we had recently
2: i'm completely Was it wrong Joe saw
0: see high like a month or two
2: you know no joe
0: that might be right maybe i'm completely wrong uh, but we also just started this the uh the financial scan it's only been a few weeks I'm maybe a few months wrong
2: you're right joe does have a month i look back to that okay
0: but he's also i would argue that he is five plus he is probably fat five plus, mm. meaning he has all the money that he needs to live a very comfortable, I wouldn't say lavish, but a very comfortable lifestyle and then some. So And his wife can, still works. And his wife still works. Mm. So, oh, he, that's very interesting. So d- is your husband still staying at home? He is still a stay at home, dad. So that's very interesting because- we don't have very much in cash at all, but I still work. And Carl doesn't, but we
2: hmm. don't spend money. So it's okay. No, fair enough. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, well, should we move on to The Famous Four?
0: We should. Okay, Chelsea, it is time for The Famous Four. These are the same questions we ask all our guests. What is your favorite finance book? Ooh, I have
1: to say Art of Money by Barry Tesler is my favorite overall money book. I really like how she ties some of the emotional side of money to actual actionable things. I think sometimes you get those like manifesting wealth books and you're like, what am I supposed to just sit around and like wish for money? That's not going to work. And so I really like how she integrates kind of some of the mindset stuff to actual action. But I also have a, a soft spot for Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham because it got gifted to me as one of my first money books. And so I always go back to that one.
2: I I love the intelligent investor. I have not read, um, art of money. So I'll have to go check that out, but I just love that bash of the mindset books. There's nothing wrong with it. I just, I just, I just thought it funny.
1: Depends on the book, but you know what I'm talking about.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. What was your biggest money mistake?
1: Ooh, good question. Um, so my, I think my biggest money mistake would actually be not doing more of that co-invest that I mentioned earlier. And so at the time when I was working that old job, I didn't want too many of my eggs in one basket, like to be working there and then to have a lot of my assets invested that way. But one, really unique opportunity to get high returns. And two, we could actually leverage that. So they had like this super low fee thing. So you could like 80% leverage. You were investing your own money. And so I didn't do that for the first several years, and I kind of wish I did. I think our, our net worth would be much larger. Uh, that was probably my biggest miss.
2: No, I love it. The opportunity cost mistake.
0: <sighs>
1: opportunity costs.
0: Yeah, that's okay though. Gets you every time. You know what? Ask the employees of Enron how they liked investing all of their eggs in one basket. Yeah. I know. I know.
1: So I can't be too upset about it. But if I would, if I could go back, that's that's something I would change.
0: What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out?
1: Oh, we talked about this a little bit in the episode. I think it's really going back and thinking about your relationship with money before you dive in. And sometimes, you know, oftentimes, especially when people start budgeting and start setting these goals, they'll tell me like, well, I can't... But every time I try to budget, I get stuck or it doesn't work or I just can't budget. There's probably some roadblock in there that you're setting up in your brain that is keeping you from moving forward. So I think the first thing is really thinking about your relationship with money.
0: That's really powerful that, I mean, look at how we did it today, all of us. Mm. Here's my money block. Wow. That's a good piece of advice. I like that a lot.
2: All right. Most difficult question of the famous four, what is your favorite joke to tell at parties?
1: This question assumes I go to parties, (laughs) especially not in 2020. I'm not at a lot of parties. I don't have a joke to tell you, but I will say that I normally end up telling a funny story about one of my kids. And the the Mm. most recent one I have that I've been telling people is my two-year-old, is, has learned to sing that song, Down by the Bay, Where the Watermelon Grows, but he doesn't quite get it yet. So he comes up with his own things of like, have you ever seen a shark eating a ninja turtle down by the... And then he just like cracks himself <laughs> up, but he doesn't understand that it's supposed to rhyme.
2: He's just picking <laughs> words. <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Two is a super fun age when they're talking mm-hmm. and they're making stuff up and they don't really understand how it works.
1: Uh, two two was a fun age with the first one who didn't have the terrible twos. <laughs> two was an adventure with our youngest who is a climber and <laughs> just generally oh. generally a crazy child.
0: Well, Scott doesn't have any kids, and he is of the mindset that kids are going to be so easy. So Can't let's wait. just let him know that he's 100% right. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Scott. Don't worry about it. They sleep through the night right away.
2: That's right. That's <laughs> what I heard.
1: <laughs> yeah, right away.
2: All right, Chelsea, where can people... Find out more about you.
1: Yeah, so I'm at Smart Money Mamas on all platforms, but we run a big annual online summit every year that's actually coming up in just a little over a week called Mamas Talk Money. At Mamas Talk Money, we have over 40 incredible speakers, including Mindy, that talk about all areas of money from mindset to budgeting and investing through to entrepreneurship and career. It's a really fun five days and it's free to attend. So registration for that is open right now at mamastalkmoney.com. So come check that out. We'll have a lot of fun. We're doing over $10,000 in giveaways of financial literacy. Literacy books and courses and prizes. And so it'll be good.
2: Awesome. Well, we can link to that in the show notes as well for people who want to find that at slash money show one four five. If you want to go check that out.
0: Yes, that is super awesome. I love that it's free and it's online, right? I don't have to travel anywhere (laughs) to get there.
1: You don't have to travel. You don't have to put your makeup on. (laughs) You don't have to get a babysitter all a lot of great perks and i know that mindy's cheap and likes that it's free
0: <laughs> i love that it's free when you're first starting to figure out money it's difficult to spend money to have somebody teach you how to save money like why would i spend money that's so dumb this is so easy to just pick and choose which things are interesting to you and watch them the money mindset that is so huge i mean you can't you can't change your relationship with money until you're ready to do it So get Mm. yourself in that mindset.
1: It's also been great for people who, for the same reason, Mindy, because it's such a block to not want to pay money to learn about money, um, for people to see the community. And so we have a Facebook community that goes with the summit. And last year, we had just so many moms and so many women talking to each other, seeing that they weren't alone in some of the things that they were struggling with and and having some cool breakthroughs. So yeah, I think it's a good entry point. Um, And we also have some more advanced stuff for people who've been in this community for a while. We have presentations from Jamila Souffrant on FIRE. Um, We're talking about long-term retirement planning and estate planning and uh, career building, all that kind of stuff, so.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So if you're a mom or if you're not, check that out. Okay, Chelsea, this was huge. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to share all of these things. That whole piece at the beginning about the investment banking thing, that was, I learned a lot just talking to you about that. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me and giving me an opportunity to talk about my last career.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was
0: awesome. Okay, and good luck at the Mamas Talk Money Summit next week. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Chelsea Brennan from Money Smart Mamas and Mamas Talk Money Summit. Scott, what did you think of the show?
2: I, I thought it was a, a a vivid, energetic, great show where we talked about a lot of things that you know. I, I kind of selfishly asked her some questions about equity analysis and the bond stuff because I was just interested in learning about like what that what that meant and what that was. But what I really thought was special about it was was her story and her journey with money and her ability, to, her kind of realization that hey, this high income identity job that I've got at a hedge fund, which is a very prestigious and you know renowned career. That's not what is meaningful to me. What's meaningful to me is is this work, the work I'm doing now, and my family, and those types of things. And that's a transition again that I think is really difficult for a lot of our higher income earning guests to go through.
0: Yeah, Scott, I think there's a lot of takeaways from this episode just for pretty much anybody listening. I mean, it, when you're starting your journey, look at what your money story is—the money moment that defined your childhood. That was. That was huge and kind of a little scary. Um, she probably could have also been a psychologist. Mm-hmm. But you know, to the high level, the questions that you were asking, I learned a lot today. I didn't even know what alpha was when you asked that question. Like, mm, I do a lot of index fund and real estate and alpha does not apply to uh, my choices in either fund.
2: I was just getting going on the jargon to try to prove my passive index fund point on my soapbox. Uh, but well, there we go. <laughs>
0: and that was really... Profound. Eighty percent of these people who work in these hedge funds are investing in index funds because they can't invest in what they know. They have to go outside, and they know how hard it is to learn about all these things. It's just so much easier to put it in the index funds, and over the long haul, kind of the same return. Yeah, Why do all I, the work?
2: I you know. I I just I thought that was interesting that. That hey we're we're barred from investing in this and we don't trust our peers. It's kind of what I got from that from I get from that statistic. So, she didn't say um, those
0: words exactly.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. So, anyways, should we should we get out of here on that note, Mindy?
0: We should. From episode 145 of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, I am Mindy Jensen and he is Scott Trench, and we are out of here with nothing clever to say. Oh, I forgot to do that again, so.
2: No, that's
0: all right. Oh, if you have something clever for me to sign off with, email Mindy at biggerpockets.com or share it in our Facebook group, which is found at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money.
2: Yeah, we need, we need one big long list of those. So please just, we'll start a thread and get it going there.
0: Oh, that's good. Okay, <laughs> I will. I will start the thread. Please comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the bigger pockets community with just a 3.5% down payment you can own up to 4 different units think about it if you house hack and live in one of the units you still have 3 different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month 4 kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value 4 different airbnbs medium term rentals or other rental strategies you can try in one property all in just one transaction of course the question is